Hi, my name is Bill Albert, and you're listening to Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. You're now Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian O'Neill, and I'm here with my friend and longtime, I guess we're not colleagues anymore, but we spent time together for a couple of years at Lycos, which was like Yahoo. Is that the right way to say it? I don't know. It was something back in the early, two, <laughs> in the early 2000s. Bill Albert, you're the head of, you're the executive director of the Bentley University User Experience Center. And I think of you as someone who really understands the place of research and creating better products and services for people. So welcome to the show. I'm really happy to, to chat with you. Yeah, it's great to be here, Brian. Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned, you're, you're an expert in, in, in user experience research and you've written some books on this. And part of the reason I asked you is I remember early on in my career when I first came to Lycos, which I think that was around, I don't know, 2001 or 2002, sometime around that. That was the first time that I had seen that design was not an entirely subjective activity, that there are ways to quantify what we're doing. There's ways to validate choices. And I started to learn that I didn't have to rely just on talent, practice, experience to make decisions, that there was a way to look at it more like, let's try this and get some feedback on it. And then if it's right or not, continue and make, make a change and as it may be. And so it was the first time I had seen a usability lab, the, both the protocol, but literally the facilities and what it's like to bring someone in into a test environment. And all of a sudden it became like a scientific thing. Like, wow, there's actually science behind all this. And I was so like green <laughs> at the time, but it was just fascinating to me that this stuff and you and Dave Hendry, I, I remember working, he was a really sharp guy. And the two of you, the work that you were doing there, it really changed my thinking about all this stuff, about how it's not, I, I don't have to defend things just because, well, I'm the designer and that's how I think it should be. Now I can use some data or some information to back up my choices. And it actually became, you go full circle, I think, and I don't know about maybe the other designers that you work with, but I find it almost more enjoyable when I put something out there and it's wrong because that's when the learning happens and you're like, wow, I never would have thought that anyone would have a problem with this thing. And it's this, the learning is so fulfilling that you actually get out of the need to feel right about it. And it's more just like, this is good enough to put out there and get some validation on now. And it's really rewarding to see what you don't even know to ask about. It's really fulfilling. So I just wanted to thank you, first of all, for those oh. exper early experiences. And so today, I really want to talk about some of the practices of research. It's something that I still find UX teams are fighting to do. I find it as something that I think data science and analytics in the enterprise, these groups really need some of these recipes that design the practice of design and user experience give us because the evil enemy to many of this group is the no adoption, low use, no use of solutions. We're constantly putting out dashboards and analytics applications and now it's machine learning and ai in the enterprise and a whole lot of it never gets used because what they call you know operationalization of the model or self-service tools etc most of the stuff just hits all kinds of human walls 
in the deployment part. And so I want you to talk a little bit about where does research fit into this and how do we prevent spending lots of time and money building outputs that don't generate outcomes? Like where does someone begin if they, they can, they feel a leader feels that this is wrong. I've seen this happen. I'm tired of this. We're not generating value. We're spending all this time making stuff. What's the antidote? Where do I start? Yeah. Well, before I jump into that, Brian, I just want to kind of acknowledge kind of the, the intro that was very nice of you to kind of remember those early Lycos days and, and the work that we were doing back then. It's a lot of people think of user experience as kind of this fairly new concept. Our, we had a UX our team in 1999 that we were called user experience. And what we were really trying to do, I think that from kind of our backgrounds was to understand or kind of bring more of a rigor into design and, and user research. And um, we learned a lot. We had a lot of fun. And I think that's really kind of been kind of the foundation of my work since then. What you're, you're asking about is, is really interesting. Like, it's almost the way I see it. First off, slowly over time, kind of the argument of why should we do research or why do we need metrics, that argument is kind of going away. More and more organizations get that this is fundamental to not only to, to design, but really to their whole business strategy. So, so to me, I, I find when, when we're talking to, to, to clients that that's becoming less of an issue. And I think really to, to kind of directly answer your question, there has to be some kind of almost like burden of proof or evidence that a business analyst or a product manager needs to make on why this is important, why this is new feature functionality or product is critical to not only enhancing, improving the end user experience, but also from, from a business perspective. It, it can't be just anecdotally, we feel like we need to do this. And, and sometimes people will just say, oh, our competitors have these features or widgets, so we need to be able to offer the same thing, even though they may never be used or people don't care about them. I think that's a very limited, short-sighted way of, of doing it because the fact is the, the more stuff you throw on there, the potentially more confusing and kind of complicated the things that people actually care about become. And, and just to, to kind of tie two, two threads together, when I started Lycos, in 99, I think around 2000, we got wind of the new website that also did search called Google. And we became very interested in Google. And we had this huge, big, complicated portal page that had everything from dessert recipes to fly fishing spots. <laughs> Auto, travel, finance, sports. And everything yeah. <laughs> under the sun. It was just all about eyeballs and, Content, and generating yeah. pages, all this stuff, right? Yeah. And Google had basically a search box and it was so different and not only was their algorithms better but you know we used to have this saying of dare to be simple and you know they sort of took that to heart and still do right and and we weren't kind of following that so mm -hmm. it's really important to understand kind of giving exactly what people want and nothing more 
and mm-hmm. and being able to make those difficult conversations. And, and to me, that's largely kind of a reflection of an organizational maturity mm-hmm. is is making those tough decisions and not throwing out every single possible feature or function that somebody might want at some point. Sure, sure. The I guess part of what I'm thinking about here is, you know, some, you know, the audience that I typically work with kind of splits at the top between product and business leaders at software companies where they probably have, you know, a volume of customers or they're hoping to have a volume of customers. And then you have the internal enterprise teams that are serving internal business stakeholders. So a lower quantity of literal humans and users that probably will inter- interact with the solutions there. I think there's a, a place for research in both of these because on the internal side, there's lots of politics. A lot of times data science and analytics teams are being seen as new strategic areas for businesses that want to leverage AI and machine learning and all these technologies, but they're also in the old IT camp and they're seen as kind of a service arm, you know, like just you're there to support the business, give them what they asked for. Can you talk to me a little bit about the just give us what we ask for versus the idea of being a problem finder and problem space research? Because I think this is what designers and creators of solutions need to be just as much problem finders as they are solvers. And lots of people talk about how great, like we're really good at solving t- complex problems. And I'm always like, how good are you are finding the unarticulated ones that mm-hmm. no one wrote down in a JIRA ticket or a requirements document. Can you talk to me a little bit about what yeah. recipes does UX give us to, to uncover those things? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want to dismiss that importance of fixing problems because we, sure. we see that in, in the usability lab all the time. Sure. And what we're doing is, we're trying to kind of optimize a current design or current experience, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're trying to kind of take the edge off, reduce the friction, and that will help. And that's good. But like you said, it, it's that's not where it's kind of research begins and ends. We really need, as, as a user researcher, we really need to more deeply understand the user needs and the and the opportunities and we need to see kind of what what we're not observing in the lab or we can't see through our analytics we there there's there there's so so much more out there that we can be doing that we can be contributing to to help move a not just a design or a product but really the experience and moving the experience forward and improving that in a substantial way instead of just not putting lipstick on a pig necessarily, but but making more superficial tactical improvements. And, and I, I really think it's what I would say to, to anyone involved in, in user research is to find those opportunities and do that work and make it known about the value that you can contribute doing that and then you will get noticed more and then people say ah okay this can actually drive our strategy our whole product business strategy instead of you know just seeing somebody who's you know doing a, a new kind of paint job if we're talking about those someone that's not coming out of the user experience profession so we're talking about someone who's really either in product management or in data science or analytics, and and they're in charge of some type of, you know, a digital offering 
it's going to be expressed as either an application or different touch points. It could be, you know, some predictive analytics that are embedded in a CRM. It could take lots of different forms, but it's a team that doesn't normally have design or user experience on it, but they're feeling the pain that comes with, you know, we go up to the plate, we swing the bat and we strike out every single time. Like we think we get it right. And by the time we get up there, something's off and our, our customer says, that's not what I needed, or I don't know how to interpret the data. I don't know what to do with this. They're not finding out that feedback until they're already kind of at the end. So where do they start? Where would a non-designer or non-UX person start to leverage these techniques? Like, what's it like? Like, do you just, what do I say like to my, you know, finance, my accounting, you know, stakeholder, the head of accounting at my company, let's say, uh, we're creating a predictive model to determine what prices salespeople should quote to our customers, right? And typically the salespeople kind of do this willy-nilly, you know, some gut checks and, and it's more art than it is science. And we're trying to bring some science into that. But when we built the thing, none of the salespeople ever actually write down the predicted prices on the quote sheets. They, they use their own numbers. Something is off in that experience. Where would someone start? Where would a data leader say, hey, this is the thing I need my team to go do. You need to go out and what do I say to the sales? Like, what do I ask them? Like, how do I start? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's both simple and hard. It, it, it is simple in that you, you need to do the upfront research. You need to talk to stakeholders and the end users mm -hmm. as early as possible. And we've known about this for decades, right? Mm -hmm. That you will get way more value and come up with a better design, better product, the earlier you talk to people. So, you know, you're not building something and then this is your only time at bat and you're swinging and missing, right? Yeah. This is, you got four, four at bats and the first mm -hmm. time you might miss and the second time you learn about the pitcher and maybe you uh, hit a single and then you're going to, you know, do better. So I think it's really critical that research is done up front to inform the design. So you're you're focusing on the things that matter that people really care about. And there's no there's no workaround for that. You can't go on anecdotal evidence. You can't just go on on a hunch. It is really, really risky to do that. In fact, this is probably the the area that companies that we work with is the single biggest mistake that they make. They come to us too late. Mm -hmm. You know, basically the thing is already baked and they just want us to do the little tweaks here and there and tell them, you know, the, the simple fixes. Right. right? And the whole idea of the product doesn't make sense to people, isn't going to deliver value. You've got to fight for that work and, and get a small, small budget to do it. I mean, that's just the. Yeah. So, but if there's sold, let, let's assume that like, hey, I, I'm sold. I, we struck out enough last quarter or last year. I don't want to, you know, I have limited time to show that I'm a leader. I have a team. I have limited time to show my own worth in the company. And everyone's looking at us. We're supposed to be leveraging machine learning and AI and all these advanced things. But if no one uses this stuff, the buck falls with me. And so I need to send my data scientists and my analysts out to do this stuff. We don't, we're not going to hire, maybe we're not ready to hire a designer user experience person. But what would I tell my team to go ask a sales team? Like, what do my data scientists need to ask my sales people? Let's say there's a team of 60 salespeople, you know, five VPs and an SVP. 
how often are they talking to them? Like what kinds of questions would they ask in this kind of scenario? And you could give me a, a real life anecdote yeah. if you have an example of this, but I'm just trying to help someone picture it in their head, like literally what is happening, how often, when? Right, so, so the first thing is to, to un un understand or ask questions about kind of the, their current context, right? Mm -hmm. So what are they doing right now? What's working and what isn't and why? and then to start to probe and understand or identify opportunities. Okay, you know what, this this I like, this this feature I use all the time, but this one, no, you know, uh, I, I don't like it because it's way too clunky and time consuming. Mm -hmm. But what I really would love is if it could, these two things could kind of work together, that would really save me. And you're like, aha, okay, good to know. And the second person says the same thing, right? So you're basically looking for understanding that current experience and identifying those pain points and opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. Then you can go back and, you know, come up with some very simple sketches just to illustrate conceptually how this might work. Mm -hmm. And you can go back to the same people or a different set of people, and it can be small sample size, very lean, lightweight research. And said, like, listen, you told us this last time. Here's a few different ideas that we have. Mm -hmm. Which of these resonate with you and, and which don't and why? You know, mm -hmm. and if, if we had to build one of these out, which one should we do it and why? Or would you like to see a combination? So it's very much an, kind of an iterative research design process, very kind of tightly interwoven yeah. to understand, you know, to make sure that what you're doing is you know, you're solving some problem that people have or addressing mm -hmm. some opportunity that they're, they're telling you about. Mm -hmm. And, and really kind of this, a almost like a participatory design process. Right. Is there a, a guideline for how many, how many people, cause I, I can already hear it now and I've heard this before. How many people do I need to ask? There's 60 people in the city and these guys are on the road and you know, the SVPs, there's one in every continent because we're a global company. How many people and how often do I need to do this before it's time to start making stuff, you know? Um, yeah, so sort of sample size is a really, can be very kind of a complicated question. You're talking to a math audience, like okay. all the statistics people, so you let them have it. Okay. <laughs> if there's math behind the the, the answer. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely math behind it. So if you look at what the goals of the research if so for example usability is based on small sample sizes traditionally mm -hmm. because our outcome variable in a way is a problem detection right and right. If, if we're just trying to detect problems we don't need that many people to do it mm -hmm. so one minus one minus p to the n is the formula for problem detection in terms of how many you need and if, if p is a probability of identifying an issue is 30%. You only need five people to capture 80% of the problems. Okay. And that's kind of very simple. And we've seen that a million times, you know, in usability testing, we test with five to 10 people. Now that, that works great for problem detection. But when we're dealing with measuring preferences, things that are more subjective in nature, we require a much larger sample size to get something statistically reliable. Mm -hmm. So in the work that we do, we aim for typically a, a margin of error of about plus or minus, let's say four, four to five percent, 
which would bring us to a sample size of, let's say, 300 to 500. So typically, that type of research we're doing online with 300 to 500 people. Now, it gets a little tricky, and, and this kind of goes to your question about, it's really not just like everybody is the same. You mentioned like different roles, different locations. We look at, or our goal is to have at least 100 people per distinct user group. So if you told me that there's senior salespeople and junior salespeople, and they use the product very differently, I'm going to want at least 100 in each of those groups. And we have people in three different regions. And so now we're talking about 200 times three regions. We're now up to 600 people. So if it's preference-based. So we look at basically the desired margin of error and number of distinct groups and use kind of a rough thumbnail to, to come up with a desirable sample size. And it can get pretty unwieldy. And the other thing I'll mention, and then let you jump in, it's really about cutting, slice and dicing the data. So if we only have 300 people, but you want me to find all the salespeople in North Dakota who are left-handed, you know, now we're gonna be down to only two people. So, you right. know, that's that's its own kind of issue about, what are we going to do with the data? How are we going to look at it? And now, if you're a data science, data analytics person, you're probably used to much, much larger numbers than that. But that's typically, from a research perspective, the kind of the numbers we're, we're talking about. What are you doing differently when you're testing, you know, five to 10 people? You know, you're maybe you're developing a custom application or something like this and, you know, you're running a usability study for an hour with five different people versus the thing you're doing with 300 people. Obviously, there's some scale and time issues here. Are there different techniques we're using when we're going for something that's, you know, 300 people? No, totally. Yeah, it's a totally different study. So, uh -huh. so when we're doing small sample size, like say usability evaluation, our goal, our charge is to observe behavior and to see where people trip up mm -hmm. and understand why mm -hmm. it's how do you do that just by listening and watching by giving people real world tasks and having them uh, perform those tasks and seeing you know kind of the their their behavior and understanding or i seeing kind of what's what's working and what isn't is this literally like Bill takes 50 and Jane takes 50 and someone else takes 50 and you're watching 50 one hour sessions no. in real time, like help, help someone understand okay. what the, the so format the, looks I was like. Describing is small sample size. So usually uh -huh. let's say anywhere from, let's say 10 to 30 participants yeah. in a research study. Yeah. It's about observing behavior, probing, asking kind of very kind of deep questions, understanding the why. And that works out really well, kind of traditional qualitative-based user research mm -hmm. in usability with the, the goal of problem detection. Got it. And that's probably one facilitator, maybe a note taker and yep. the participant. So we're talking about three humans in a room together, yep. uh, you one know, on one. repeat 10 to 30 times, something yep. like that. Okay. And then what's yep. the one in the hundreds? What's happening okay, there? So that, that is almost always going to be online. So it's going to be in the form of an online survey okay using like uh, qualtrics or survey monkey or google mm -hmm. forms 
There are other online tools that allow you to mm-hmm. do that. The um, optimal suite to do like card sorting studies. If you're interested in information architecture, kind of more integrated solutions like user zoom that kind of capture both behavior and allow you to embed survey questions. Those are mostly self self-reported survey self-reported. was kind of the main thing you were talking about. Yes. Okay, got yeah. it. Now, there, there is, not to confuse matters, there are some hybrid techniques where you can get a lot of data very quickly with kind of in a one-on-one format, mm-hmm. you know, setting up a bank of, of laptops and having a whole group of people observe people use something. Some some organizations do that, but um, right. far more common is, is doing something online because it's not cost or time Right. It makes sense to individually interact with 300 to 500 people. Right. Obviously. So, yeah. Can you give me an example of a before and after, you know, maybe a client that decided to invest in this on a project and, and how it changed the trajectory and what the business value there was? And, and then tell me if that's a special case or is that a typical kind of result? Yeah. Like if I invest in this, what's that look like? Yeah, I'll I'll give you a nice example. Actually, I wrote about this in my book because it was one of the best examples that I've I've been part of. Mm -hmm. So Boston Children's Hospital came to the UXC a number of years ago and said, we we need help with our donations page. So individuals who want to make a contribution to Boston Children's are taken to a page and it wasn't really well designed. And they said, you know, we think it's a little complicated, but what we really want to do is encourage people to make monthly recurring donations. And so what we did was we looked at their page and then we also were looking at two other children's hospitals. Like I described before, we brought in you know individuals that, that would be prospective donors to Boston Children's and had them kind of go through the, the process and looking at how they make a one-time versus a recurring donation. And the recurring donation process was a little bit different and very confusing. And we saw how it was working on another website, and we made um, a series of suggestions on how to improve it. And they, I think they took most of the, the suggestions we made. And about... I don't know, maybe three, four months later, I get an email from this guy that we're our main contact there. And he's like, Bill, you won't believe it. We have like a 600% increase in the amount of recurring donations. And it was a lot of difference with a lot of money. And what I love about that was it was a very simple study. The issues we identified were very obvious. The solutions were also obvious. They implemented it. They were able to measure the impact. We could see the ROI, and it was for a great cause. And it was nothing nefarious. We weren't like doing some some things that other organizations might do to solicit more donations. So anyway, it, it was just such a happy, good story that mm-hmm. had kind of all the elements to it. And I think that's really important is to, you know, hopefully be able to measure the ROI of, of UX. And this was like, you know, he gave us the metrics and I was like, Florida, I, I thought that they would get something kind of a, a slight bump, but it, it was much bigger than any of us expected. Can you tell us a little bit about, help us picture the before and after, like there was some before state, 
you learned something, there was an after state, like broadly speaking, what, what changed? Gosh, that's a hard question because it was so long ago. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I remember that there was one little interaction and it was a lot of times when people make a donation, they want to make it in the honor or memory of somebody. Mm-hmm. And it was people really wanted to be able to do that. And before it was very difficult to understand how to do that. And that was one small thing we made to kind of make it more personal mm-hmm. and more kind of obvious, like, hey, I can give, you know, 20 bucks a month to Boston Children's in, in, in memory of somebody or whatever. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was just one small example. But I don't remember all the details of, but I do remember it was a fairly simple changes. And and that's the thing with, with user experience, as you know, is the devil is in the details. It's one it can be just a few words or a few pixels here and there yeah. that make all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. So. Sometimes it can be a nasty, uh, oh man, the whole, <laughs> the whole engineering, like the architecture is like yeah. completely set up for a mental model that is not what's actually in people's heads. Like yeah. just, you know, sometimes it is that, but you're right. Sometimes it, it really comes down to what is a trivial quote, engineering fix or a technology fix, it's rather trivial, but it could make a huge difference in someone's, you know, adoption. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, I, I don't know, I don't know if you're doing doing much work with machine learning and artificial intelligence and whether or not the, the process and, and uh, methods of doing research change when you're doing that. And if, if, if you're not necessarily changing the kinds of research, I'm just curious, if you were going to a situation where you're working with a, a technology solution that delivers a probability, a probabilistic outcome, right? A range of choices. Maybe the choices can be overrided by the user. Maybe they can't. Maybe the, some of the choices are wrong some of the time. This is the, the nature of, of predictive models and stuff. Is there a way we, are, are there different questions we should be asking users in the research field when we're dealing with a probabilistic you know, technology, a a solution that's going to give ranges of answers. And we don't always know what it's going to spit out because it's a dynamic environment. I think that fundamentally the answer is no, our research methods don't change because what we're trying to understand Mm -hmm. is kind of technology agnostic, Mm -hmm. right? It it doesn't matter where, whether it's a a toaster or a mobile phone and, Mm -hmm. you know, the questions that we're trying to understand of, how people are using this, how can we make this a better experience? And mm-hmm. th- those, those are constant. Mm-hmm. What I would say is what we want to understand, like let's say in terms of like dealing with a probabilistic model is do people understand what it's conveying? Do mm-hmm. people get it? Is it delivering value? Yeah. So kind of the, the thing, the output from that model we want to understand mm-hmm. certain basic things about that. And it it doesn't matter whether it's coming from machine learning AI or it's just a complicated piece of, of content. And I don't mean that to dismiss that, but mm-hmm. it, it's from the end user's experience. Everything is about, I have a task to do or, or I want some experience. Yeah. How is this helping me do that? Is this giving me something that's really useful or not, or is it confusing me or, or, or what have you? So mm-hmm. 
you know, how we approach is, is almost like other things. And, but it, it's certainly a really interesting kind of fertile area of research now because, you know, a lot of people don't fully understand the value of it. So mm-hmm. it's important to really look at that. Yeah, I, I think what's called model interpretability sometimes or explainable AI, I am seeing a change in, in the market in terms of more focus on explainability, less on model accuracy at all costs, which often often suggests using advanced techniques like deep learning, which are essentially black box techniques right now. And the, the cost associated with black box being, I don't know how you came up with this and I'm really leery to trust it because I don't understand how it works. I'll take the less accurate, less accurate thing that's clear about how it came up. You know, we checked this, we checked that, we think this because of that. That seems to generally be something that that I'm hearing more. I, I did want to ask how how you deal with like a user, and, and I don't know if you've been in this situation before where, you know, I've literally heard about this, like when marketing analytics, for, for example, we say that we want decision support and and analytics and and predictive analytics are both methods for delivering decision support. But in reality, what's going on sometimes is we want the data that's going to validate decisions we already made. We're less, we're less interested in hearing that it's not right. And so you see data teams that are all about the facts. Like this is, you know, we crunched the numbers and like we looked at all these different facets and the story's not great, but here it is. And then it doesn't get used because it doesn't reinforce existing positions. Is there something that this like qualitative research can help us do here to like maybe start changing the culture there if this is like this where our our internal business users maybe don't want to hear bad news? They don't really want the facts, even though they say they do. I have heard this come up and I'm just wondering your take on that. Uh, that, That's a really um, powerful aspect of of being human right so it's hard to to go against that but i think as a researcher what we need to do a good job of is explaining things in different ways and acknowledging people's kind of current perspectives or or beliefs that they have and you know, I, I'm I'm now starting to do some work in data visualization, kind mm-hmm. of around that, and especially around like data storytelling, yeah. and, and how we take data and we provide interpretations of it, and, mm-hmm. and explaining things in multiple ways, and and being kind of both simple and as transparent as we can be mm-hmm. to help kind of break through some of preconceived ideas or notions and confirmation bias and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really tricky. I mean, but I think at the end of the day, you know, you're going to believe what you want to believe. And mm-hmm. there's probably only so much that we can do from a, a research or a design perspective to truly shift somebody's. Yeah. Is there an example you can give me about how you might change the delivery of the story based on the audience? Like, it sounds like you're saying like the data storytelling, maybe there's different ways to communicate the same thing differently. Like, how do you frame that? Like, how do you approach that? It's really understanding your, at the end of the day, understanding your your audience in in all facets, right? Like what Mm -hmm. is, what are their motivations? What, where are they coming from? Informing them of the 
data you may have that is not kind of congruent with what they're thinking. So an example of, of some research that we've just sent out for publication, so it hasn't even been out yet, but it, it's really kind of along these lines of, because COVID now, is, it's been politicized for so long, is to look at whether Republicans and Democrats perceive COVID data visualizations the same way. So we would show them COVID data visualizations and flu or influenza data visualizations of the exact same data and have them basically describe it and perceive things like slope increases or decreases and proportions mm -hmm. of bars and things like that. They're much more perceptual as well as more subjective interpretive. And um, it, it's very interesting research about kind of how we may see things or, you know, in, in this case, the, the findings were Republicans and Democrats see, see the visualizations the same way perceptually, but describe them differently, right? So oh. if I showed you a, 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 an increase in COVID cases and deaths from, you know, last fall, right, depending on your perspective of COVID, you might see that as sharply increasing or only moderately increasing. Okay. So, Based on your political leaning, your answer might've been yeah. sharply or moderately. Yeah. Oh. Can you yeah. tell us some of the early findings or we have to wait and read the, yeah. we have to wait I mean, and read? Probably, I mean, there's a lot of nuance to that research, but the bottom line is that in this case, Democrats described COVID, the just responding to looking at these visualizations uh -huh. is more sharply increasing because we did this study last year mm -hmm. and republicans described it as more moderately increasing got it right but when they looked at the flow data they both described it the same way even though there's that exact same wow data interesting so it's it's to to your point about how we look at or interpret sure. the same data differently depending on our worldview. right um, yeah you know yeah I will definitely link up if you uh, provide us a link. I'll put that in the show notes to where people can kind of watch for for that. That sounds like an interesting study to yeah. get into. One one kind of closing thing, and then I want to give it give it to you to share any other informa uh, information or insights you'd like to share. But talk to me about analytics on analytics. So I I know that uh, because of this beastly problem of low adoption that that kind of plagues the, the this space. I often ask data scientists uh, and data science teams and leaders, like, how do you know if your stuff's being used and what are the measurements? And, and a lot of times if I hear anything at all, which is not always any tracking of what's happened in the past, they're just onto the next project. But the ones that are, it's like, oh, well, we installed the analytics package, you know, in Tableau or whatever. And, and they're tracking usage just by quantitatively, like, you know, page views within Tableau dashboards across the entire enterprise. And then that way we know if people are using it or not. So therefore it got value. What are we learning from analytics on analytics versus qualitative stuff that both of these have some value, right? But they're not for the same purpose. Can, can you kind of share your thoughts on that? Yeah. So <laughs> this has been going on for so long, like yeah. this, this, this problem. And what I would encourage the listeners to do is to put it into their process that before they even start the project, they're going to have a way of collecting metrics that really reflect the success of the product. Yeah. Right. From, from both a business and a user experience perspective mm -hmm. and into, to 
make that mandatory and to do the extra work. It's so easy and so tempting to say, hey, we, we shipped it, it's live, or we've launched it, whatever. You know, let's have the cake, put, pat ourselves on the back, job well done, on to the next project. Right. There has to be something, some motivation, some senior leader has to say, hey, wait a minute, we have specific metrics yeah. and goals that we need to achieve. And yeah. one of them is around usage and the value of it. Yeah. And what did we get for that investment? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, it, it's amazing that I'm even saying this in a way, because to mm-hmm. me, it's just so, it's so obvious yet. A lot of organizations don't, don't do that. Or they, they assume that they have to do it and people will, will find it eventually and use it. And, what have you, yeah. but I would just push people to, you know, and, and, and from, from a budget standpoint, usually you're talking about, Hey, give me 1% of your development budget to do the research. 1% hmm. to answer like these fundamental questions of, of making it better and, and measuring how good it really is. Right. Right. You know, the, that's so critical to the success of the product. Why yeah. wouldn't I have 1%? Yeah. Yeah. Because it slows us down. It's like, yeah, but your enterprise project's been going on for 24 months. I mean, I think that's a lot of it is just simple sunk cost bias. We've been working on this two years. No way we're turning the ship around now. So now the, the only point is to ship something at the end at all costs because someone's, you know, what is on the line value be damn. It's just like, yeah. You know what I, I think that's not an uncommon thing, especially in really large scale enterprise projects. It's just there's so much sunk cost uh, there, but that's a whole nother another can of worms. But well, when I was at when we were at Fidelity together, yeah, there was a case of that where where there was an actual product that we had tested right uh-huh. before it was going to go live and found that the current experience was way better than the the new design, mm. and they stopped it. Oh, they did stop it. Yeah. They Easily, started. or was that a was that a difficult conversation? I wasn't in the room for that oh. decision, but, <laughs> okay. but the decision was made. We're why knowingly ship something that's worse? Like I know there's sunk costs. It was like a million bucks. It was a it was not a little bit trivial, of money. yeah. And so they we ended up making some changes, and it tested much better. And then they launched it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't the end of the world, but it, that was to me was a great reflection of kind of an organizational maturity where they could yes. hit the pause button and say, like, let's not be stupid here. Yeah. I forget. So there's a, some designer, some design thought leader, UX thought leader that has these kind of organizational uh, maturity models for uh, design centric culture. Yeah. And one of the high ones is the, the willingness of the organization to actually not put something out if it's not good enough. And it's pretty rare that you find I don't remember that particular, I probably wasn't working on that, that project, but, uh, or maybe it was the thing I made. I probably made the no. one that <laughs> I no one remember. told me though. Why do you tell me, Bill? Come on. <laughs> thought you were my friend, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that maturity level to say it's not good enough. Like we're, we're not going to jeopardize what we've done to date just to put this out. We're going to hold it back. You know, hopefully we don't wait that long to find out it's that far off. But I think that is a, sta- a sign of maturity that we care enough. And that's probably more of a product company kind of approach to things. But at any rate, these are this, this has been really fascinating, really great information here. 
where can people follow your work and anything else besides the the, the political data viz uh, study coming out? Are you working on any new texts or anything like that? Yeah, yeah, I've got, I, I always have a lot of things going on. So third edition of measuring the user experience will be out later this year. If you're interested in, in, in working with the Bentley UXC, go to www.bentley.edu slash UXC for our professional services. And we also have a lot of education training around user experience, user research. Mm -hmm. Find me on LinkedIn, connect. Got it. And where to find out about your your books? Do you have your own website or something? Where is that? Uh, Where's all that good stuff? I don't know. We we have an out of date (laughs) website, I think, called measuringux.com, but it's... Okay. LinkedIn is best way. Just find you on LinkedIn or something like that. Yeah. Or just go to Amazon and search measuring the user experience and you'll see... And just to clarify for, for listeners, so Bentley uh, University it's here in Massachusetts, I used to think that you only ran the educational part, you know, training people in the human factor. I forget it's the human factors or HCI program that's there. But Bentley actually has a commercial arm, right? You're doing, you're almost like a consulting firm that does uh, usability testing and research for digital products and things like this. So d- did I get all that basically correct? Yeah. Plug, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, because I used to think it was just uh, all, all uh, educational in nature. So, so yeah, check that out. We'll definitely put a link to it in the show notes. And Bill Albert, it's been really great to catch up with you. Thanks for coming on. It was the show. a lot of fun, Brian. Good, good. Well, thanks again. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.